Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at what you would have us to learn from all this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8. We just got done about Jesus being compared to Melchizedek, the priest that Abraham gave a tithe to. And so now we're at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the, of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there is that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of the better covenant, which was established upon better promises." All right, so we're going to stop there. A lot, lot of stuff in that small section. So starts out, now this, now these are the things that were spoken of. For This is the sum. Now he's not talking about math, mathematical sum here. He's saying this is the principle. This is the most important thing I want you to get out of this. Jesus was the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He goes, That's, this is my argument. This is where I'm coming. Now this is the most important point I want you to get. Out of, this, out of this statement. It says, He who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the right hand, we've talked many times about this. We still have the term in our day, this is my right hand, right hand man or my right hand person. This is the person that I depend on. It's the side of approval in the scriptures. It's the side of somebody that's important. When the disciples were talk, you know, discussing in, in Luke 9 that we were talking about this morning, who was going to be the greatest, basically they're saying, who's going to be the right-hand man? Who's going to sit on the right side of the throne and be number two in charge of everything? And this is what Paul here is saying, that he sits at the, in the throne in the majesty of heaven. He is an authority um, the minister of the sanctuary, note the the in there, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. All right. So he's making this discussion because he's talking to the Hebrew, Hebrews, because that's the title of the book, Hebrews. He's talking to Hebrew people. And he's saying there is a tabernacle in heaven or a temple in heaven not made by man, and by the time we get down here, we'll, we'll talk more about it when we get down to when Moses was told to, to build it after the pattern. The, the tabernacle that Moses built, was it patterned after the heavenly tabernacle? So there is a place where God sits on the mercy seat in heaven, where the holy of holies is, where the blood is put, where Jesus put his blood of his sacrifice before the Father to say, the sins of man are paid. Now, does it look exactly like the tabernacle that was out there? I don't know how close it is, but God said, here is the pattern, follow this pattern and do it the same way. So we don't know how close it is, what it means to be a spiritual temple compared to, a, to an earthly temple. 
And this is the thing we have to remember. Every time we read about spiritual things in heaven, it's the nearest equivalent that we can make up for it. All right? It talks about walking on streets of gold. Are they literally streets of gold? Are they colored as gold? Do they, you know, is it something far superior to gold? They describe the, the gates of heaven in Revelation as giant pearls that are, what was it, 20 or 30 feet across? So that's a pretty large pearl. You know, are they actual pearls or are they just something that looks like pearl? You know, we don't know. Do we even walk when we've, got our, when we've got a spiritual? We don't, we don't really know anything about it. The colored, as I listened to one guy, he says the colors that are described sounds like plasma, which is something that scientists have just finally discovered, uh, a plasma light and colors on it. And I don't know whether it's true. I just know that God has got something infinitely greater for us than we can even imagine. And this is the thing we have to understand. When they make the descriptions of things, they're doing the best description they can make on human terms. And what's even worse, they were making the best description they could in the first century of things that they saw that are either in our century or beyond our century and trying to make sense out of it. Even by what they wrote, everything sounds great. But just, to, just remember that it's going to be infinitely more than what is described. And we don't even have a clue what it's going to be like. And I would, I would agree with C.S. Lewis when he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia that it's everything that is good in this world multiplied. <laughs> and then you go a little further in and it's everything that's good there multiplied so that it becomes just more and more of everything that's good. And this is going to be the thing. We don't know what it is we're going to go to. The only thing we know, it's better than what we have here. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah, and that's, the, and that's the best news. Whatever is in store for us in heaven is many, many, many times more <laughs> and better than what we have in this world. Because everything is fallen in this world. Everything is so incomplete in this world. And it's an amazing thing, the, the, the greater our science gets, the more we find that God has put in place for us to discover. You know, we can now see things outside of, of light, and we're starting to find patterns in flowers and bugs and animals that we could never see before, and God put it there from the very beginning. Because there's animals that see those patterns. There's animals that are attracted or, or, or rejected by or repelled by those colors that we don't see and it's just amazing and then we look at into the to the solar system and we're looking at these planets in our solar system and seeing the beauty of these moons around our planets and I love astronomy and it's fun to see all the beauty in there and say wow God did this so that we could discover it in the 20th century and the 21st century what man could not see back in the in the first century and it's been there all along. And those are just a taste of what heaven's going to be like. You know, it is just an amazing thing when we think there's something out there that is so much more <laughs> than what we see. And this is Paul's writing on this. You know, there's a heavenly tabernacle where Jesus is the high priest of, sitting at the right hand of God in something greater than, greater than the tabernacle or the temple. 
Now remember, he's talking to Jews. The greatest thing to the Jew is, Jewish person is that temple. With all the holy, where they get to worship and they get to offer their sacrifices and the holy place inside it and the menorah that none of them have ever seen because they can't go into the holy place. They just know the description of it. They just know the description of the, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. They know the description of the showbread. They've never seen it. And yet, to them, that's the greatest thing that they can do for worship. And they're just doing it on faith. We have faith that there's something in behind, the, behind that door. We have faith that there's something behind that curtain. We've never seen it. All we know is Moses was told to make it, and it's supposed to be back there for the, for the priest to, to minister to. And I'm not saying it was or wasn't. I'm just saying, by faith, they were saying, we trust. We trust because we have never been back there. We have never seen that. And yet, that to them was the greatest thing that they could do. And here, they're saying, there's a greater. There's a greater than what you think is the best thing. And, you know, and so this is where we're at. And it says, the Lord pitched it. For every high priest is ordained or selected or consecrated to offer gifts and sacrifices wherever it is of a necessity that this man have something to offer. So what he's saying here is the priest, before he could even serve, had to offer a sacrifice for himself. So every day when the priest came in, he offered a sin sacrifice for himself, and he offered the burnt offering, he offered the consecration offering, he offered the drink offering for himself. Then he took a, a, a bath in, this, in the bright, bright brazen sea to clean off the dust and dirt. Then he got dressed for service and the priestly garments and then he got to go to go to serve God how would you like to have to do all of that just to be able to do your job <laughs> and all of this had to happen every day for the priest to be able to go in and it says then it goes for if and this if means if and it and it's not true for if he were on earth then he should not be a priest seeing that the priest that offered gifts according to the law. So what he's saying is Jesus was on this planet, on earth. He couldn't be a priest. Why? Because the law said that the priest had to be a son of Aaron and had to be a Levite. Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of the king. So he could not be a priest if he was on earth, so he had to die, he had to go into heaven so that he could be the priest after the order of Melchizedek in heaven. And this is where we're getting into this whole chapter is about the better, better covenant, the better promise. And so he's the priest after a better priesthood. Uh, he's the perfect priest. He is the perfect king. He, is, you know, he gets to be the king and the priest all rolled up in one. Now, we think about this. Satan has counterfeited Jesus' position in most of, these, most of these lands and governments. In that day, the king, the pharaoh, the Caesar, all determined that they were God and that they were the one that could offer sacrifices and everything else in their temples. So they were uh, the king, ruler, and the priest in their religions. And Satan has said, okay, Jesus is going to be that. I'm going to make a copy of it. And this is the hard thing is because Satan knew the promises. He knew the scriptures and he put all of these things in place long before Jesus came along and put these 
the, the, the king and, and priest in one, one ruler long before that. He put the stories out of Nimrod. He put the story out of Hercules before Jesus was born. And if you read their stories, you would say, well, Jesus is just another, you know, he's just another uh, Hercules. He's just another Nimrod in history. You know, they all went in, they conquered death, they were resurrected, they went into hell and, and were victorious. They did all these things. And you, if you just read all the mytho mythology on these people, you know, you're reading the story of Jesus, written before Jesus came. Because Satan knew what was going to happen. <laughs> he so, knew the prophecies. So did Satan know that Jesus was going to be born? Oh, yeah. So he knew that. Genesis 3.15, the first promise that the man was going to crush his head, and he knew that it would be be the Messiah. So Jesus didn't actually become a priest until after he died? I mean, he was a priest before that, right? But he had existence long before he was born, but he got to be, go back to being a priest. And as we talked about in Melchizedek, I am one of those that believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Jesus, so that he came down and, and was honored by, by uh, Abraham. He gave up everything. When he came down to earth, he gave up all of his, his rights, his authority, his power to be born as a man and to grow from an infant to a, an adult. And we don't, and one of the greatest discussions that you can have and never have an answer for, when did Jesus realize that he was God? We have nothing in the Bible to tell us that. We know by the time he's ministering that he knows he's God and that he understands the thoughts and the intents of man. You know, did he, did he learn and understand it when he was a young child? Did he learn it as a teenager? We don't know and we will never have that answer. Well, he, huh? well, he said I had to be about my father's business. So probably at 12 he was at least beginning to understand. So did he, how much of the scriptures did he know that he was responsible for inspiring? Yeah. You know, we just don't know anything about that side of this. We know that he understood them by the time Satan is tempting him in the wilderness because all of his answers were scriptures. Uh, and I believe somewhere close to 12, you know, somewhere between 12 and 30, uh, 30 when he started ministry, and he probably got the full recognition that he was God. You know, and we don't understand that. You know, God became man, and then he became the Theanthropos, the God-man, and he was 100% God, 100% man, not 50-50 like we would think of because, it's, you know, we think, well, you're half God, half man, but no. 100% deity, 100% man, and only God could do that in a miraculous blending of that individual. <laughs> and we don't understand how, but in one sense, we kind of understand it because when we get saved, 100% of God indwells us and we become fully inhabited by God and we're still us. So in one sense, we have that same idea, but we're, we still are sinners and we're not, we're not totally meshed together. We just have God fully indwelling us. And Jesus was God and was man. And it's hard to, we can't, it's one of those many things that we cannot fully understand. And that is one of those good things. 
you know, I like it that there are things that we cannot understand about God. Because if I could understand everything there was to know about God, then I'd become God. Because I, I know as much as he does, or more than he does. So, And the strange thing is, there are many people that say, well, because I can't understand everything there is to know about your God, I cannot believe him. I'm going, well, I'm sorry that you don't like the idea that you're not God. Because that's really what they're saying. If I can't understand something, it cannot be true. Which means I'm God in my own eyes. I like the fact that I don't understand how he could be 100% man, 100% God. I like that I don't fully understand the Trinity. I'm very happy that I don't understand how God can be perfectly righteous and holy and still have mercy to this world to hold them for the long, the long haul and not judge them for everything they do. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And I've come to that conclusion after many years. You know, I graduated from Bible college knowing the answers to every question. <laughs> It didn't work out very well. Didn't take me long before God himself showed me that I didn't even understand half the stuff I thought I understood. So, but, you know, it is hard because in our human nature, we have this pride of, I can learn, I can understand, I can, I can learn all this stuff. And God says, no, I'm God. You know, and I jokingly say, but it is said of all the times, you, you, learn, you learn two things in seminary. There's one God and you're not God. And everybody should learn that. But, you know, half of our problems as, in, as humans is the fact that we don't recognize that there's only one God. And we don't recognize that we're not God. More people have trouble because they think they're the center of the universe and that everybody should be bowing to them and giving in to them. All right, so if he, verse 4, if he was on earth, he couldn't be a priest. Verse 5, who serve unto the example of... And the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. So in verse 5, he's saying Moses was told to do something. All right. Now, if you want to read these verses, they're, they're basically Exodus 25, 9 and 40. And Exodus 26, verse 30, are just two, three of the verses that re, and the, the ones that say it most clearly. And he says, be careful to do everything as I have instructed you. All right? And so this is that statement here that is intensifying it. Why was he told to do everything exactly? Because it was the shadow of something else. The priests are the shadow of the true priest. The tabernacle is the shadow of the true tabernacle. The sacrifices are the shadow of the true sacrifice that Jesus was fulfill fulfilling. So, you know, and here we have a very interesting conundrum. Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. <laughs> Which, again, we look at him and go, well, how can you be the priest that's offering, this, offering the sacrifice, be the sacrifice at the same time? Because he's God. And he's able to do something that we cannot, cannot fathom and do. Uh, people will say, well, how can Jesus die for the sins of the world? Because he's God. He is infinitely perfect, so he can cover an infinite amount of sins because of his inf infinite perfection. And there's not an infinite number of sins because there's only a finite timeline. There's only so many sins between Adam and the destruction of this world. 
And God is infinite, so he can cover all of those sins plus. So because he is infinite in his righteousness, he's able to cover with his blood the finite number of sins. That the, Now, there's a large number of sins, but it's a finite number of sins because it's only during the time of this world, 7,000 years, that he's going to have to cover those sins. And so we have this whole problem that he's going in. But verse 6 says, But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much more he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. So he became or he mastered the more excellent or surpassing ministry. So he's saying, you Hebrews, you think the, the priests are the big, the big dogs in this thing? <laughs> They're only a shadow of the real, the real priest who is not a Levite, who is not a son of Abraham. He has a more surpassing this is why he laid the whole argument of Melchizedek before them. Melchizedek was a priest of God, not of Aaron's line. And now he's saying that Jesus is of that line of Melchizedek. He is a priest. Even though he cannot be a priest in the temple, he is a priest in the heavenly temple where the sons of, Ab uh, sons of Aaron aren't priests. <laughs> sons of Aaron are priests in the earthly shadow not of the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus is the priest. So here's his argument, and we've got to follow his argument on this because it's, it's been building for the whole book up to this point. The whole two chapters ahead about the, the order priesthood after the order of Melchizedek has been building up to this point that he says, there is a temple not made by hands where Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, is the priest. And it's better than the Levitical Aaronite priesthood. So he says he is a better one. And then he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Now mediator in this word is technically a lawyer. He's the one that would argue a, a law case. So you, you would have this man who would go up and he would stand in front of the gates, in front of the elders, and he would be your arbitrator. Jesus is our lawyer. Good news for us, he, is, he has never lost a case and he will never lose a case. Because ultimately, he has the top defense. Father, I paid for that sin. It's already paid for. You can't judge them. It's taken care of. Satan comes along and accuses us of sin and Jesus says, uh, paid for. It's paid for. That's all he does in, court, in, in the heavenly court. Father, it's paid for. I, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. You know, you'd think that Satan would get tired of accusing. Well, yeah, but in heaven he, heaven, he loses every time. For us, yes, we fall for it. So he spends all of his time accusing us and making us feel miserable and awful and terrible and how bad we are because we don't always recognize our relationship and our, our standing with God. And we need to. We need to understand that our sins are forgiven and are not an issue with God. And when we fail, Satan is going to have, try to have a field day with us, but we just need to remind him that we're forgiven. You know, you know Satan, I'm forgiven. You can't, you can't get me. Now, that's easier said than done. <laughs> but it really does come down, how much do we believe God's word? 
do we truly believe that God has forgiven us by grace? Huh? Faith rest, okay. Well, this whole book is about faith rest. And that is part of it. If I really understand who I am in Christ, then I can sit back and rest in faith, knowing that I'm forgiven, knowing that it's God doing the work, and that I don't have to struggle. So this is the beautiful thing about it. And the, the fact that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Sin was paid for. And even at the white throne judgment, the thing that they're going to be judged for is that, that their good works are not perfect. The, the white throne judgment, it's not sin that they stand before. Jesus paid for sin. We have accepted Jesus Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The Father looks at us and says, oh, there's my perfect son, come on in. They're going to stand at the white throne judgment dressed in their own righteousness, which Isaiah says is filthy rags. And they're going to appear before the courts of heaven thinking, you know, I'm, I'm all set. I've got all my righteousness on. And then they get to look down and find out that they are standing before the God of heaven, the judge of the world, with rags. And he's going to say, guilty. You do not have the righteousness of Christ. You are guilty. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire. And this is all of the things about faith rest, when we know that we are in Christ, that we are perfect in God's eyes, no matter what Satan attacks us with, we can just rest. When all hell seems to be breaking loose in our life, we can just have faith rest that God is still on the throne. And it'll be always a test. Do you believe his word? God, you said this, I'm just going to stand on it. Don't understand how it can be true with what I'm going through. I don't understand how it can be true with what I did. But you said so. I'm going to stand on your word. And the more we stand on his word, the more rest we will have, the more peace we will have. Because I'm not God. God is in charge. And God is only going to let happen to me what he allows to happen to me. And the more we realize that, the better off we are. Now, the more we realize that, the more we're going to have come our way to see if we truly believe it. But it's still a fact of, God, I just want to rest. I don't do it perfect, but I do it better than I used to. And say, God, you know, don't understand how this can be your will, but I'm just going to rest and, say, and watch what you're going to do. And that's not a problem to tell God you don't understand what's going on. Just don't get worked up about what's going on. God, I don't understand it, but you are still in charge, and I'm going to just trust that you're in charge. And blessings will come. You know, I like to point to Job, and I don't always talk about this, but you know, at the end of the book of Job, very short paragraph, it's only about six sentences long, verses long, or eight verses long, he got double everything that he got taken away. He got blessed for what he went through because he stayed faithful. God has a blessing, usually in this lifetime, but it could be in, in the next lifetime. We're going to get blessed no matter what, and we're going to get blessed anyway in heaven, no matter whether we get blessed here, but we just put our trust in him. Yeah. 
All right, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them in their heart. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. They shall not touch uh, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he said, A new covenant I will make the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. All right, so here we have him going in and saying... There's a better covenant. He's been building this up. He's been setting it up. He's going to, in verse 7, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, if the first covenant had been perfect. All right. Now, he's not going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. That was an unconditional co covenant that said, if You will be a great nation, and your descendants will be like the, sea, uh, the sand on the sea and the stars of heaven. And... You know, so he's going, that is an unconditional promise to Abraham. It has never been broken, never will be broken. All right? If you go to a church or you hear a pastor saying that the church has replaced Israel, they don't understand the Bible. God made his promise to Abraham, and that promise is unconditional, and it doesn't matter what Israel does. They are blessed with the Abrahamic covenant. The church does not replace Israel. Now, we get a lot of their blessings, but we have not replaced them. And by the time of the tribulation, the church will be gone and everything focuses back on Israel. When God starts punishing his people and saying, are you going to now pay attention to me and come to me? And halfway through the tribulation period, when the Antichrist steps up and says, I am God, worship me, they realize that they have been tricked and cheated and they turn to God and say, we want to follow God and, they, and God protects them. So there will come a time when this whole scripture is going to be fulfilled. And then this scripture actually started much earlier, but ends with the millennial kingdom as, as, it's, completely, as it's complete finish. But he says, this first covenant, if it had been faultless, then there should no place have been sought for a second. At Mount Sinai, God said, you are my people. He was ready to speak to them directly from Mount Sinai and they heard the thunders and the lightnings and the loud voice of God and they say, Moses, we're afraid you go up and talk to him. We don't, we don't want to hear you talk to him and then we will do whatever he says. And they got the law. And all the law did, because he did not want to come before God, all the law did was show them that they were wicked sinners. And this is the purpose of the law. 613 laws in the Old Testament. We as Gentiles basically know 10 of them. And we can't keep 10. And there's another 603 that we're not really aware of. And we can't keep any of them either. Okay. Uh, but the law was designed to tell people that you're not God. You're not perfect. 
you aren't even righteous. You don't even want to be righteous because you keep breaking all the commandments. You know, you keep breaking all of these commandments and you're not perfect. And because you're not perfect, you have to go to the temple of the tabernacle at that time, offer your sacrifice over and over and over again to ask for forgiveness by offering this sacrifice, which was a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus Christ. And all these times, all these times they would go to the tabernacle and offer and hope that they were clean for another another day. Can you imagine what it would be like? You just offered your sin sacrifice on the way home. You, you committed sin. <laughs> you know, this was supposed to cover me for a year and I've already committed one and I haven't even, haven't even got home. By the time you get home, oh my goodness, I've committed 20 or 80 sins, you know. I'm in trouble. And this was the problem that they had. Never knowing, have I confessed all my sins? Have I, do I really know God? Now, we realize the Old Testament, the real thing that they had to do was be in a relationship with God. Abraham was a friend of God. David understood and had a relationship with God. In, individuals and prophets had a relationship with God where they understood, we're just in a relationship. I'm not here just because of all the rules that, that are applied. I have a relationship. They understood the God of grace. He's always been a God of grace because he knew that we could not keep the laws. And he says, I'm just showing you that you're not perfect. Are you now willing to humble yourself and come to me? Jesus died and we started emphasizing grace. But you know, even in the New Testament, he's a God of righteousness and holiness. If you don't remember that, just look at Priscilla and Aquila. Or not Priscilla and Aquila, uh, yeah, the other two that lied to God. Priscilla and Aquila are good, good followers of him. Uh, they say they gave their money and they got yeah. judged. And for some reason, I can't remember their names. I'm getting them mixed up. But No, those were the good guys. I've set, I've set the wrong stage. They're, they're close. They're, they're close to those names. They sold it. We, we only sold it for this much. And we're given everything. And God said, you've lied to me. And they died. Yeah. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Very good, Gary. You got it. Uh, so Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, and God killed them instantly in church. Didn't even wait for them to walk out of church. You know, they appeared before God, tried to lie to God and lied to the people, saying, we gave, we gave everything, and God said, you've lied to the, me and you've lied to the, bride of the, the church, the bride of Christ, and you're dead. Oh, it put a shock. It should put a shock into the people. Imagine if he still did that today. You know, God, I've, I've I've served you this week. Well, it might might clean out the church a little bit. <laughs> but it says, if the first had been faultless, there would not have been a need for a second. If the laws of God and the sacrifices could have been could have brought around righteousness. Jesus would not have had to die. And there's no other way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Because he says, if that wasn't true, then he wasted his time coming. If there was any other way to the Father, then he didn't have to come and die. He would have just said, that's your path over there. Follow that path. 
but he knew that there was no other path except through him. And this is why people don't like that, because they'll go, well, that's narrow, that is, that's bigoted, that is, you know, how can you believe that nobody else that doesn't know him is going to go to hell? Yep, that's what he said. So, and then he goes, verse 8, for finding fault with them, he said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, here he's going to quote an Old Testament verse. The verse he quotes from is Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 4. And I'm not going to read it in Jeremiah because it's pretty much exactly what's said in these next verses. Uh, it's got a few different words in it, but it's, very, it's pretty much the same uh, on it. But it starts out with, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my laws into their mind. No longer will they have to study the laws. They will automatically be put in there. Most of this is millennial kingdom prophecies. That God in the millennial kingdom will put his laws in people's minds and not have to be taught. (laughs) All right. Uh, For us as Christians, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we get to the place where his laws are put into our minds. So it's kind of a, one of those mixed bag uh, fulfillments. But it starts, I will put my law in their minds and write them in their heart. We're told in, uh, in uh, Jeremiah that he will take out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. And he will write his words on that heart. When we become a Christian... He makes us a new creation. He takes out the hard heart. He takes out the spirit that is not willing to be humbled. He makes us a new creation in Christ. He lifts off the burden of sin. And this is, these are the things that are really great. When somebody truly gets saved and all of a sudden they recognize, I don't feel the weight of my sin anymore. I've got peace. I understand the spiritual things a little better than I did before. And everything just opens up. Now, I'm not saying if you don't have an emotional relationship at that point in time that you're not saved. But I do believe something in you needs to change for you to be saved. He promises us that we are a new creation. What changes? Something needs to change in your life. Might just be a love for coming to, you know, for God's people. Not just for coming to church, but for his people. Might be a love for the word of God. Might be some sin taken out of your life instantly that you thought you would never, ever get victory over. Something has to change in your life because we are a brand new creation. And I love it because for a lot of people it is. The Bible was not something they understood and then they, they got saved and all of a sudden they're in love with the Bible and they understand it. It could be just some sin being taken out of their life that they thought they'd never have victory over. For me, that was what it was. I had an extremely bad temper. I fought people just because they looked at me wrong, you know, or I perceived that they looked at me wrong, or I thought they were looking at me wrong, or I thought that they said something about me, and I'd fight them. God took that away from me instantly. And I, that was my big change in my life. And then he gave me a love for the word and love for church and all the other things that go along with it. But we look at this, and he says, I will do this. 
I'm going to put my word on their heart. I'm going to write it on their, on their hearts. I'm going to do all of this. And then it says, and I will be to them a God, and they will to be to me a people. So here he's talking to Jewish people who think that they're God's people just because they're born of Abraham, even though that's contrary to what the scripture said, that you had to make a choice for him. And he's saying that God is going to be a God, not just to the Jews, but to anybody that comes into the right place with him. This is a shock for them. For the Jewish people, we Gentiles are terrible people. We're almost worse than the Samaritans. <laughs> you know, the Samaritans were half-breeds. At least they were par partially Jewish people. Some, uh, Gentiles? Oh. Now, for the rabbis in, the, in that day taught that Gentiles were, were created by God to feed the fires of hell. You know, that's all that we were here to feed the fuel for hell for eternity. They hated Gentiles. They didn't want anything to do with Gentiles. They, you know, and here he's saying that God is going to make people his. He's using the same term that was used for Abraham. They will be my people. I will be their God. And during the millennium... Well, it's, it's primarily to them. It is primarily to them. But it was also understood that this was not just the Jewish people that were going to get this special place and honor. And for the Christian church, at Pentecost, Jesus poured out his spirit, God poured out his spirit, and then very shortly thereafter, on Gentiles. And if you remember in the book of Acts, we talked a long time about how this was a hard thing for them to understand. The, the Gentiles... We're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and, and, and being healed and getting saved. And they're going, we don't understand this. They're not Jews. They have not, they have not proselyted to Judaism, and yet God is making them his people. And that was the vision that uh, Peter had for Cornelius. It was Paul said, I'm called to go to the Gentiles. And they're really suffering with this idea of, well, what do we do with all these Gentiles becoming followers of the way? You know, they're not Jews. And they did not know what to do with them for the longest time. And then over time, the church became more Gentile than Jews. And then the Gentile church started to attack the Jews. <laughs> because they, you know, whatever, you know, the biggest reason was they put Jesus on the cross. It's all their fault there. You know, God has rejected them because they did not know, their, know the Bible. And so... Here God is saying, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least unto the greatest. This has not been fulfilled yet. <laughs> all right. This will be in the millennial kingdom. Jesus will reign from Jerusalem over all people, and all people will know God. The time of the millennial kingdom will be as close to Eden as can happen with a fallen, sin-nature-filled people. And there will be many people who won't be happy. Now, there will be many that say, I want to follow God. This is a wonderful, great place. I kind of like this. It's wonderful. There will be others that say, I don't care. I still don't want to be submitted to God. I know it's God. I know that he's, he's the, the, the king. I know he's the ruler. I know things are pretty good. But I still think I can do better. That was Satan's original sin in heaven. 
In Isaiah, we're told that he says the seven I wills. I will ascend to the, to the mountain of the north. I will sit on the throne next to God. I will, you know, be like the most high. Satan never said he was going to be greater than God. He was smart enough to understand he could not be greater than the creator. But he did say, I will be like the most high. What was his temptation to Eve? He knows that the day you will eat of this fruit, you will be like him knowing good and evil. So his, his temptation wasn't, you want to be greater than God, but you can be just like him. Same sin that he committed. It'll be the sin during the millennial, at the end of the millennial kingdom. We want to be like God. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be in charge of everything ourselves. And we don't want to submit to God. And Satan will be released at the end of that millennial kingdom and whip up those emotions <laughs> and build an army to attack Jesus. And, you know, it's hard to even picture that happening. Now, who is, who is in the millennial kingdom that is alive, that can have children? Everybody who didn't take the mark of the beast, primarily Jewish believers. There might be a handful of Gentiles that did not take the mark of the beast. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be very hard not to take the mark of the beast. We're already seeing that in our day and how and the immunizations and all the stuff are not the mark of the beast don't get me wrong but we're already seeing where this is leading if you don't do this you can't you can't go to the store you can't work and we're not there yet but that is what they're talking about we are so close to the technology of the mark of the beast and it will be very hard for people to go through the tribulation period without taking the mark of the beast which is grateful that we as a church will be raptured. We will be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb for seven years while the earth goes through hell. Or something hell-like. <laughs> not, not really hell because hell will still... When they, when they get to hell, they'll look back to the tribulation and say, God, can we go back to the tribulation? It was better than where we're at. Yeah, and this is where we're, we're at. As bad as we think this is right now, it's not hell. As bad as we think the tribulation will be, it's not hell. Hell will make all those things look like a day at Disneyland. But they're just testing us now. It's just a testing. It's, you know, right now they're trying to see how much can we control. Can control yeah. How much can we control? You know, it's not the mark of the beast, it's, but it's laying the foundation for that event. So we see all these pieces coming in. And what is so surprising is how fast things are happening. You know, we have gone from not worrying about anything, any control issue to how, when are they going to stop the control issues and how, where are they going to try to stop that? And, you know, if you look at history, the fall of all these great nations usually happened in just a day, you know, with a day or a week. It didn't take very long for the fall of a nation to happen because judgment falls and then everything falls apart. And God has been warning us. He has been over and over again warning us to see, wake up. Wake up and see what's coming. We've watched natural disaster after natural disaster saying, wake up. If you read the Bible, how did God start with his judgments? He sent droughts, he sent famines, he, stopped, he sent you know, natural disasters. That didn't work, he sent in raiding parties from enemies. That didn't work, you know, you got destroyed. <laughs> you know, we look at what's going on in our world. 
natural disasters, all kinds of craziness going on. And now we're starting to see uh, diseases and, and all of this stuff going on. And we're going, even the church is sleeping and slumbering and saying, nope, it must not be God. It's just, just things that man's doing. Well, you'll wake up one day and find out that judgment has fallen and there won't be a way out. Now, the good news for us as Christians is before the tribulation period starts, we will be taken out. But we're going to suffer a little bit before then. We are going to be looking at what's going on. And Jesus said, know the signs, know what's coming. But if we know the scriptures, we know that what's happening is not something that is un unheard of. It is what was predicted. And it's happening so fast that we're going, wow, God, you knew all of this was coming. And it's, it's an amazing thing. We are so close to the rapture. We need to get serious to tell people about Jesus and get ourselves ready to see what's going on because all this preliminary work is being put in there saying, well, how far can we control them with this vaccine? How far can we push them out of their jobs? How far can we push them out of shopping? Try a dry run for the, for the mark of the beast. Now, I know the vaccine's not the mark of the beast. How do I know? Because the beast isn't here yet. Okay, the, the man of sin is not here yet, so this is not the mark of the beast. They're trying this. But they're trying it, they're testing it. How far will people let themselves be pushed? And the funny thing is, we're seeing that people are willing to let themselves be pushed quite a ways. And we look at it and say, why would you do all of this? Why would you allow all of this to go on? And yet, now we're starting to see how everything can be put together in so fast a away and know that we're sitting right at the end time. Now, can we escape the end times? Yes, there could be a great revival, turn the world around. We saw it over and over in the scriptures where a nation would re repent and they would get an extra 100 years, 120 years uh, of reprieve. Will it happen? God can do whatever he wants. Now, isn't this <laughs> I just don't think it's going to happen. Part of it is a test for us as Christians. I mean, do you really, I mean, you know, are you going to go with the world, how they're thinking and telling everybody? Or are you going to believe your belief? That's a big thing. All of our trials and testings are for that purpose. Do you really believe what you say you believe? And the more you say you believe something, the bigger the test will be to make sure that you really believe it. The test that somebody who is a brand new Christian that has only been saved for couple days or a couple weeks go through is be nothing compared to something somebody's going to go through who's been a good Christian following God for 40, 50 years. And God says, well, you know a lot. Let's see if you really, truly believe. And, and it's going to say, how much do you believe it? Job definitely believed, otherwise he wouldn't have gone through the trial that he went through. And he was a teacher of people. And he was a righteous man. And God says he hated evil. And he went through total devastation. All of his possessions stripped from him in a day. All of his children stripped from him in a day. And then his health taken away from him. And the picture of it says that he was sitting there with sores covering his body. Yeah. And then he had all the guys that were supposed to comfort him. 
telling him how awful he was and that he had to repent because he must be really awful, terrible sinner for all this stuff to happen. Because they did not come with loving compassion. Well, they were, they were so sure that they were right that they had left all the compassion behind and said, Joe, we know we're right. You did something terrible to deserve all of this. Why don't you just confess and get it over with and let God finish the job with you and just confess that, you know, with your sin? We need to be very careful that we don't get that same kind of attitude in, in, when we minister to people. Yeah, don't be the don't be like the friends. Now, verse twelve says, "For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more." This is the beauty of what God has done through the death of Jesus Christ. He does not remember our sins; they have been put under the blood of Jesus which is good enough in and of itself. Then God says in in Psalms, I have removed them as far as the east is from the west. Now, if you go east and west, you never start going the other direction. You can continue going around the world forever, and you'll never start, if you go west, you'll never start going east. Now, you'll end up on the east coast, but you'll have never started going east. And God says, I have separated your sins an infinite distance because those two never meet. He's buried them in the deepest sea. All these descriptions, God has taken sin and removed it so that it is not the issue. Now, our imperfect righteousness is an issue because all of our righteous acts without having been done through the power of Jesus Christ are tainted by sin. I'm going to help this person and... You know, maybe they'll be, be thankful enough that they'll get saved. Well, that's a pretty good motive. But is that why we're supposed to be helping them? No, we're just supposed to help them. Not that they will get saved, even though they might. You know, I'm going to, really, I'm going to be nice to this person because they, they might be able to reward me. No, wrong reason. All of our righteousness is tainted by some form of sin. This is why it's hard for us to even picture heaven. Because everything that we know on this world is tainted by sin. All the good that we know is tainted by sin. So when we think about heaven, we're told that there are going to be crowns in heaven, that there's going to be rewards in heaven. And we put crowns and and rewards in our mind, and we're going, earned activities. (laughs) You know, these are the things that I have earned. God says, no, they're the things that I give you because you have let me work through you. And we don't fully understand anything because everything that we understand is tainted. We live in a fallen world. We can't even picture what Adam and Eve lived in. Total perfection. No storms that would destroy the, the, the Eden. No vicious animals when you went out to when they take your life. Nothing poisonous. Nothing deadly. No thorns. We can't even picture that kind of thought process. And yet, they had that. And we can't even begin to picture what it would have been like in Eden because everything we know is fallen by sin. 
When Adam and Eve fell, they destroyed not just the human race, they destroyed the entire planet. Thorns and thistles and the weather patterns and everything else, death came into the whole world. I don't think they understood the enormity of what they did when they did it. You know, uh, because they were thinking death, you know, I'm going to have death. They weren't thinking their death was going to go to all their children, to all the animals, to all the plants, to the very planet. And in Romans, we're told that the whole world groans for the recreation that's coming, coming its way. And we don't fully understand all of what fell. And it's hard to understand what fell because we don't have a concept of a perfect world. We have our concept of what we think a perfect world is. Philosophers will try to tell you what their concept of a perfect world is, which isn't all that great when you listen to them. But we don't know what it is, and yet that is what's in store for us, a perfect world. When this world is destroyed and a new sin-free world is created that we get to be rulers in over the angels and whoever else. I don't, know, I don't know who all we're going to rule, at least the angels. Maybe there will be a hierarchy of, of, a, of people that have been saved, you know, those who just didn't let God work and those who did. We don't know. We don't understand anything about that even. You know, as to what it means to rule over cities in the new heaven and new earth. Uh, and then it says at the very end, he says, in that he says, a new covenant he hath made the first one old, that which now that which is decayed and waxes old is ready to vanish away or to disappear. He says, I've got a new covenant. For us as Christians, Jesus at the last supper said, this is the blood of the new covenant. In other words, the law is, passed, is fulfilled it is a new covenant of mercy and grace. So when Jesus died, this prophecy started. It is not completed. <laughs> he started writing his laws on our heart. He started becoming the God of people. He started bringing people into a righteous relationship with you and forgetting their sins. It won't be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom and even possibly into the new heaven and new earth. At that time, it'll be completely fulfilled. Nobody's going to reject him as God in the new heaven and new earth because all those who reject him will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And this is the good news for us. When we are saved, we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ and are accepted. We will not stand at the white throne judgment when we're saved. Only the lost will stand at the white throne judgment. Everybody who stands at the white throne judgment is guilty and going to hell. Everybody who is saved will stand at the bema seat of Christ where he will take everything that we've done in this life, throw it in an oven and say, here's what you get. Here's your rewards for eternity. Everything that we allowed him to do in our life will be rewarded and everything that we did in our own strength will burn up. Wood, hay, and stubble. And, you know, I've shared this before, you know, stubble is totally worthless. Hay at least feeds animals and wood can make some pretty substantial things. But that's the best we can do in our own strength. Build something out of wood. And Jesus says, all those good things, they're going to burn up. You thought they were really wonderful. You did them in your own strength. They're going to burn up. 
what did you allow me to do through you? And here is your reward. And I can almost see, you know, when he looks at it, it says, here's your reward. And you look, you know, some people are going to have nice big piles of it because they let God work in their life. Others who everybody thought were really good, righteous people, they may come back with practically nothing because they did everything in their own strength. They were well-disciplined. Everybody thought they were really good. And they'll come back with nothing because they didn't let God work through them. And this is so critical for us. Who is doing the work in your life? Is it you or is it the Holy Spirit working through you? Total surrender to God is what he expects from us. And that is hard in our flesh. This is why he says that the flesh must be crucified. For we are crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. He crucifies our flesh and our spirit lives and he gets to work through us in our spirit and give us rewards by letting him work through us. This is the glory that is waiting for us. And there are people that go, God, I haven't done anything for you. Well, you might have done more than you think you've done if you've just surrendered to God and let him work through you. There are going to be people that you're going to look at it, and a lot of people are going to look at their pastor and say, that pastor was so good. He was, you know, he kept his, little did they know that the pastor wanted to do everything wrong (laughs) and maybe even did things wrong in secret and just didn't do it where they would see. You know, I have no desire to drink, and as a pastor, I would not drink. And there are pastors that won't drink because they don't want to be seen drinking, but they really want to get that drink. I have no desire for it. I've seen what it did to, to my family members. I don't want to drink. I don't have no desire to drink. No desire to get into drugs. Part of it is I know my personality. If I got into either one of them, I'd be, I'd be in trouble. Because I always overdo everything. I always go you know, 200% doing something, and I know that that's how I would be if I was to drink or do drugs. So I don't want to. Huh? God saves us. And God saves us. So... But all of this comes down to what is God doing in your life? What is it? And all of us have areas where we would really like to do something and maybe we don't because we don't want to be seen doing it. And you know, for wrong reason, good result. I mean, being obedient to God always has good consequences. All right? Being disobedient always has bad consequences. But rewards in heaven... No, we have to have it with the right attitude as well as doing, doing the right thing. And this is where it's all going to come down to. He says, I have put a new heart. I have put my laws upon their, upon their mind and, in, and written it on their hearts. I have made them mine. I am their God and they are my people. This is where the Christian church has been very like this, like Israel. God says, I'm coming to you. I'm living in you. You are my people. I am your God. And we see this beautiful picture of him coming in and making us his. And so this is where we end with this chapter saying that Jesus was the new priest in the heavenly tabernacle ministering a new con- con- covenant with the people that is that he will be their God and they will be his people. That's what this whole chapter is about. Very long-winded way to come up with that summary. But he's trying to build this case so that people understand what exactly has happened. Mount Calvary 
was the centerpiece of all of history after the fall. The fall of man destroyed man in the world. Jesus brought us back at Mount Calvary. When he comes back at Mount Olivet and touches down, he will rule this world in almost as close to perfection as sin nature will allow. After a thousand years, he will destroy this world and start all brand new with a perfect world and reign in perfection. So all of these things that we have, key points in history that everything floats around. Satan seemed to win a victory in the Garden of Eden, thought that he had won a victory on Mount, on Mount Calvary, lost three days later when Jesus was raised from the dead, thinks he's won a victory in the tribulation period and he seems to have everything under his control and then Jesus comes back, binds him for a thousand years, raises up an army and says, okay, I'm going to win this time. I can't understand how he's deceived himself so bad, but he's managed to deceive himself that somehow he's going to win where at every turn he loses. And then at the end of that battle, he will bow down before God and declare, you are Lord, just before he's cast into hell or lake of fire. And everybody else, every knee will bow at the white throne judgment and declare, you are Lord, just before they're cast into the lake of fire. But if he knows everything, everything that God's doing, doesn't he know that he really is not going to ever win? He doesn't know everything. He just knows what has been said in the Bible, and somehow he thinks that he can defeat it. Satan's whole goal is to defeat God's plan. I don't know where he's deceived himself that he can beat God's plan. He did it, you know, right, right before anything when he, when he said, I will be like the Most High and got rejected, got thrown out of heaven to, to, to the victory over Adam and Eve, the defeat, well, he, the, the belief that he had won at Mount Calvary, the defeat of the resurrection in the empty tomb. He's going to think that he's won when, when the tribulation period, even though he knows the scriptures. Yeah, but, but it's also not. He doesn't believe them. God's the only one that knows everything. Now, he knows the scriptures really well. He knows that his destination is hell according to the scriptures. But he is so sure that somehow he can defeat God. He doesn't know the future like God does. No, he doesn't know the future other than what is written, written down. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen. Uh, he has been trying to destroy Israel so that the Messiah would not be born. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, various kings tried to destroy them. Haman, you know, all these, all these people tried to destroy the Jews because he figured if I can get rid of the Jews, the Messiah can't be born. He's born and he tries to get Herod to kill all the babies and he does kill all the babies in the area of Bethlehem. But Jesus isn't there. Jesus, he kills Jesus on the cross thinking, now I've got rid of the Messiah doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And then he rose from the dead. What has he been trying to do since then? Again, try to get rid of Israel because if he can destroy Israel, there won't be a fulfillment of most of the prophecies that Israel is going to come back to God and going to be protected by God and, and worship in their temple and they're going to make a, a covenant with the Antichrist. So his goal is to wipe out Israel. This is why Hitler came up and all these other people have come up to try to destroy the Jewish people because Satan says, if I can get rid of the Jews, I will have proved that God doesn't know the future 
because the future that he predicted cannot be fulfilled. So all the, every step is him trying to defeat what he already knows God says is going to happen. And his whole, everything he focuses. When, during the tribulation period, God is judging the world, but Satan's focus is on getting rid of Israel. I'm going to destroy Israel. I'm going to get rid of them because if there's no Israel, then God has lied. And if God's lied, now he's not perfect and I can be greater than he is because I can prove that I was stronger than him and stronger than his prophecies. So he's constantly trying to destroy the prophecies. He's, God says, this is my bride. It's spotless. It's clean. And Satan constantly goes after Christians to try to trip us up to show that we're not perfect and attack us so that we're not, not seen that way. All that he's doing, he's a liar. He's an accuser of the brethren. And he wants to try to prove that God has lied. And his whole goal is any prophecy in the book, he tries to make sure. And as he, as he tries to make sure it doesn't happen, all he does is make it happen. You know, he'd be better off just leaving things alone in many cases and letting it, letting it just flow anyway. But he's actively trying. The more he tries to destroy the church, the more it grows. He almost destroyed the church by just letting it alone. By letting it alone, he almost destroyed the church. But now he's starting to put persecution back on the church to try to destroy it. And it's going to lose in the long run. So our goal is just to learn to trust God. Follow God, trust God in all that he's doing and care for him. And just learn to rest in faith. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We ask you to keep us always focused on you. Help us to see you and follow you. Help us to really trust that you are in charge and that you have a plan and to just live in faith rest. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com 
or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.